verses 4 through 13. This morning's message is going to continue right on where we left off last Sunday morning in the first three verses. And this is a long section, verses 4 through 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3. But it all goes together. It can't really be separated, and that's why we're looking at all of it this morning. And what I would like to do is just read the passage as we move through the sermon, so I won't be reading it all ahead of time. So what I want to do this morning is I want to get right into our outline, and our first point is scoffers will come. Last Sunday morning I shared that the second sentence of verse 1 is the key thought in chapter 3 and prepares us for everything else that Peter writes in this chapter. If you move up to verse 1, Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying this is the second letter. And in the inspired word of God, we have 1 Peter and we have 2 Peter. This is the second letter that I am writing to you. And then is that key sentence in verse 1, that second sentence which says in both of them, in both of the letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He says, I'm stirring up. I want to stir you up. And that term, that phrase means to disturb your complacency and to impress upon you the spiritual urgency of what I am sharing with you. It's as if you watch a documentary on world hunger and poverty and you are moved. There's something that happens within you and you're disturbed by what you see and you want to go out and do something about world hunger, about world poverty and that's the exact thing that Peter is saying here. I want to disturb you. I want to disturb you out of your complacency. I want to stir up I want to stir you up. I want to stir up your sincere mind. And that means a mind purified and uncontaminated by seductive influences. It means I'm appealing to your mind that has not been polluted, that has not been contaminated by the false teachers that he talked about so extensively in chapter 2. So I want to stir up your sincere minds by way of reminder. And so he says, verse 2, that you should remember. I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. I want you to remember the Old Testament. And we looked at that last week, that all of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi is the inspired word of God, and it is relevant and important for us today. And we need to spend time in the Old Testament and then he says, I want you to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The commandment of the Lord and Savior is believed to refer to the gospel itself. I want you to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ that was explained to you, that was expounded on by the prophets, or excuse me, by the apostles in the epistles that we are writing as Peter writes this. And it reminds us that the New Testament is the inspired word of God from Matthew to Revelation. 
and everything in between. And so we looked last week at the fact that both the Old and New Testaments are equally inspired and every word is completely trustworthy. And as a church, if we are going to fight against false teaching, if we are going to protect ourselves against false teaching, we need to be glued to the Word of God. We need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We need to do it individually. We need to do it as a church. We need to do it as, as families. We need to do it to get the Word of God into us in any and every way that we possibly can. And here's why. Here's why, verse 3, Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Knowing this, first of all, it doesn't mean first in sequence, it means first in importance. I want you to know this as the most important thing that scoffers are going to come. My brothers, my sisters in Christ, I want you to know that scoffers are going to come. The word scoffers does not mean those who make light of the Word of God or joke about the Word of God. It means they're in open rebellion against the existence of God and the Word of God. Scoffers are in open rebellion against the existence of God himself and against the Word of God. And I want you to know this. It's most important that scoffers will come in the last days. The term the last days here refers to the entire period of time between the first and second comings of Christ. Technically, it means that time from after Jesus' resurrection until he ascends to the right hand of of the Father, from that time all the way until he will physically return to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. That is known as the last days as it is used here. It is the entire period of church history. And Peter is saying to us, I want you to know, (coughs) excuse me, that throughout church history, scoffers are going to come. And that has certainly been true. They came in the past. They are among us today. And they will continue to be among us until the Lord returns. <coughs> that brings us to the passage this morning. And Peter uses the example of the second coming of Christ, a t- teaching that scoffers have mocked for generations. So he says... I want you to know. I want you to know that scoffers are going to come. And let me give you an example of how they are going to scoff at God and his word. In verse 4, he says, They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are... (coughs) Excuse me. Stop coughing. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They are saying this. Where's the second coming? Where's the second coming of Jesus? Ever since the beginning, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
And this is an amazingly modern argument for rejecting the supernatural. This is an amazing argument in that it hasn't changed for centuries. They are mocking, saying, are we supposed to believe, really believe, that Jesus is going to come again? Think about it, folks. This is what they're saying to us. They're saying, think about it, folks. For thousands of years, the sun has come up, the sun has gone down. For thousands of years, the seasons have come right in their order. Every year, for thousands of years, the seasons have come right on time, just like they're supposed to. For thousands of years, the ocean tides have risen and they have fallen, just like they're supposed to. And yet you want us to believe that somehow God is going to intervene in the laws of nature and Jesus is going to come and there's going to be a final judgment and they mock and scoff at the second coming of Christ. This argument simply says the laws of nature are constant and unchanging and I will not believe. I will not believe that God is somehow going to supernaturally intervene in this. And this is exactly the position today of much of modern science. The laws of nature, which we know are the laws that God has set in place, cannot be changed, they say. And unfortunately, there are hundreds of pastors and theologians and churches and seminaries today who reject outright a second coming, and a final judgment. Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, that brings us to our second point this morning, and that is the eternal viewpoint of God. The scoffers in their mocking deliberately reject the evidence of the created order history, and the prophets of God. In verse 5, it says this. Excuse me. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. I want you to notice that phrase, deliberately overlook. Now, I might be doing a project and I overlook something important. I missed it. Didn't see that in the instructions. This is different. They deliberately overlook. They deliberately reject the evidence. They deliberately reject the evidence of a created order. In verse 5 it says, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. They deliberately reject the evidence that God created the heavens and the earth by his spoken word. That God spoke all of creation into being. And it says the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 1 and verses 6 through 10. We're not going to turn there this morning. You can read it on your own. But it says that the waters existed, and God created an expanse between the waters above and the waters below, and the expanse 
he called sky, or as the English Standard Version has, the ESV says, heaven. God created heaven, which refers not only to heaven itself, but to the galaxies. To all that is outside of the earth. But not only that, it says in Genesis that the waters below, in the waters below, he formed dry land, and the dry land he called earth. And God created by his spoken word heaven and earth. And Peter is saying they have deliberately rejected the evidence of God's creation. Secondly, he says they deliberately reject the evidence of history. In verse 6 it says that by means of these, the world that then existed was, was deluged with water and perished. These false teachers, these scoffers, deliberately reject the evidence that God has already intervened in history. He brought the judgment of the flood upon the earth and destroyed every living thing except Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives and the animals that he brought with him on the ark. Besides that, he brought judgment. Yes, he's already intervened in history and brought judgment upon this earth. And in their scoffing, they deliberately reject also the evidence of the prophets of God. In verse 7, it says, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. They deliberately overlook, they deliberately reject the evidence of the prophets of God that one day, and maybe you're not fully aware of this, God is going to again destroy the earth, or we should say judge the earth and the heavens by fire. He is. Before he did it by water, in the future he'll do it by fire. Again, once by water, in the future by fire. And you say, why, why would God judge heaven? did a series on heaven and hell back in, in 2010 and I touched on this subject. It's an interesting subject and we don't know all the answers. So I don't want to go and speculate anywhere beyond the word of God. But we do know this, that heaven, the present heaven, is a perfect place. It is the place where God dwells. And the people who are in heaven now live in perfection. But that heaven is going to give away to a new heaven eventually. And it is believed the reason is because though heaven is perfect, there has still been the presence of sin in heaven. That may surprise you. But in Job chapter 2, we see that Satan comes to make his argument before the throne of God. Satan has been allowed to come before God and to accuse the brethren. And he accuses Job. So it is believed that even heaven will need to be cleansed of any, any tainting any smattering of sin. But what is important and what Peter is saying here is one day God is going to judge the heavens and the earth by fire. Now, I believe that you folks who are here today are good Bible students and this is something that you need to know as a student of the Bible. 
Second Peter chapter 3 is the most important place in the entire Bible that tells us that the present heaven and earth will be judged by fire. It is the most important place in the Bible to give us that information. Again, in verse 7, it says, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Notice that. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Drop down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Look at verses 12 and 13. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set, notice this, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So if someone asks you about the judgment that will come upon heaven, the present heaven and the present earth, take them to 2 Peter chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 and 16. This is not new. It's just that Peter really expands on it. Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. That passage is a direct reference to the judgment at the end of time. And then in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, many of you are familiar with this. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now watch this. For the first heaven... And the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's all interesting. It's good information or things we need to know, but don't miss Peter's point here in bringing this all up. His point is this, as he talks to the scoffers and to the mockers who say, where is the promise of his coming? The point is, God has always intervened in history to accomplish his purposes. God has always intervened in history to accomplish his purposes and he will mark it down. He will do so again. Well, then we move into verses 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, we have one of the best-known sections in the book of 2 Peter and a very important teaching in our understanding of the character of God. So I really want you to focus in here as we learn or relearn some amazing truths about our God and how great and magnificent and transcendent and majestic that he really is. Let's take these one at a time. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Wow. With the Lord, with God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter 
is answering criticism that Christ's coming, that the second coming of Christ has been delayed so long, we can't really believe he's coming back. I mean, it's been a long time. Early in this series, when I was going through 2 Peter chapter 1, I shared with you that a number of years ago I saw a comedian. And he said this. He said, gotta love those Christians. Gotta love them. They keep talking about the return of Christ. They keep saying they're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Well, it's only been over 2,000 years ago. Yeah, right. Right. Jesus is coming again. It hasn't happened for over 2,000 years, but we're supposed to get ready for his return. That's the very argument that Peter is responding to here. Peter's response is this. Don't miss it. Peter's response is that God doesn't see time like we see time. God is immortal. God doesn't age. And God doesn't forget. But most importantly, God sees all of history at a glance. Here's a very important statement for you in understanding the person and character of God. God sees all of time all at once. Mark it down. God sees all of time all at once. He sees the whole thing. He sees it all. He sees from the very beginning of all things to off into whatever, how long the distant future is, which we know is infinite. And you need to take great comfort in that. I need to take great comfort in that. God sees all of time, all at once. You know, our, we're all worked up right now. We're all worked up about the presidential election. Our stomach, our stomachs are in knots about what's going to happen in our country and, and what's going to happen with this presidential election. Let me tell you this morning, God already knows how it's going to turn out. And he sees way beyond that. He sees way beyond that. God already sees right now. He already sees the rapture of the church. He already sees the tribulation. He already sees the physical, visible return of Christ to earth to set up his kingdom. He already sees the new heavens and the new earth. He sees it all at once. He sees everything all at once. Take confidence, my brethren. God sees it all. And he is watching over you in every detail of your life. I loved what one writer said. He says, because we are created in the image of God, we get just a little taste of this. Just a little tiny taste of this. He says, you see it in older people. As people get older, they will more and more use this one phrase. And that phrase is this. It seems like it was just yesterday. We do. As we get older, we use that phrase. We say, it seems like it was just yesterday. Seems like it was just yesterday that I was in school. Seems like it was just yesterday that we got married. Seems like it was just yesterday that our, our kids were toddlers. You know why it seems that way? Because it seems that way. It does. It does. There's a part of us 
created in the image of God, that we can, in a sense, relive those things. We see them so clearly. I think I might have shared this with you a number of years ago, but when I came on staff, when I first came on staff as a pastor, it was 1990, and we had a member of our church that I visited in the nursing home for the next 10 years. His name was Paul Lanterman. Paul Lanterman died, went home to be with the Lord in the year 2000. He was 106 years old. Oldest person I've known. Maybe you've known somebody older, but that's the oldest person I've known and talked to. Paul was at Ovid Healthcare Center for a number of years, and then they moved him to Hazel Finley in his last days. In his obituary, it said that he lived in three different centuries. He was born in 1893, died in 2000. It's pretty amazing. But I remember one time back in the mid-90s, I was visiting with him. And he loved cars. And, and Paul was one of these guys that, in, I, I, I want to be careful I say that, but he was fortunate. His body really deteriorated in old age, but his mind was sharp. I mean, really sharp. And when we were visiting there in the mid-90s, he, he said to me, or he was talking to me about cars. He loved cars. And he said, you know, when I was 21 years old, I, I worked at one of the early Ford car dealerships. I worked there. And he was telling me all about the things he did there. He said, that was 1914. I was 21 in 1914, born in 1893. And I'm sitting there thinking, 1914? That's when World War I started. You're 21 years old. And he's telling me all about this, and then he says this. He says, it, was, it seems like it was just yesterday. Seems like it was just yesterday. And you know how sometimes when people talk to you, they're talking with you, but they've got this blank stare? That's what he was doing that day. He was reliving it. He was back in 1914 at that Ford car dealership, some at that time, some 80 years ago. Let me tell you, folks, when Jesus comes a second time, from God's perspective, it will be like the first coming of Jesus just happened yesterday. That's how God sees things. He sees the first coming and he sees the second coming all together. Our God is an amazing God who sees all of time all at once. Well, let's move to verse 9. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the second verse that we know well, but teaches us something extremely important about the character of God. I wonder how many times you have heard that God does not wish, God does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. A beautiful statement about God. Now, I want to say something very briefly here, but importantly. 
This verse is not teaching universalism. Universalism is the teaching that everyone in the end will get saved and nobody, nobody will go to hell. When it says that God does not wish for any to perish, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance or come to repentance, it is not saying that everyone will be saved. We know that's not true. Jesus told us clearly, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and few there are that find it. So we know that not everyone is going to be saved. That's not what this saying. However, however, this verse shows us the tremendous compassion and love of God. I want you to know this, the heart of God is for you to come to know him as Savior. To know the free gift of salvation that is available through his son, Jesus Christ. He wants you to know that he has accomplished a full and free salvation through the death and resurrection of his son. He's done it all for you. And invites you to come to him to repent of your sin and to believe in him, to receive him as Lord and Savior. Oh, the heart of God is a heart that longs for you to know him and to come to him. Here's the tragedy. Here's the sad thing. The false teachers were using the patience of God as a basis for mocking him, for making fun of him. Where is the promise? Where is the promise of his coming? But let us know this. The delay of Christ Please have this clear in your mind. The delay of Christ's coming is meant to lead us all to repentance and belief. You know why Jesus hasn't come back yet? Because he's waiting for you to come. He's waiting for the gospel to be taken to the most unreached people groups of the world. He is waiting for the gospel to go to all the nations. He is waiting. He is waiting for people to come to Christ, to know him in salvation. But at the beginning of verse 9, it says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Don't you worry. God's not slow. God isn't behind. I want everyone to know this. God is right on time. He sees all of time and he is right on time. He knows exactly when Jesus is going to come. He knows exactly when it's going to happen. He's just waiting for people to come. Verse 10 says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. But one day it is going to happen. And all those scoffers are going to be caught off guard. Because the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Well, Peter closes out his argument with this. Since all of these things are true, what kind of Christian lives should all of us be living? Since all of these things are true, what kind of Christian lives should all of us be living? In verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, 
what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In verse 12, he says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want to go back to that phrase, first part of verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day of God used here is different than the last days, the phrase used in verse 3. The day of God is the day of judgment. The day when God is going to bring his judgment upon the heaven upon heaven and earth. And it says this, waiting for, that we are to be waiting for and hastening the day of God. What does that mean? Sounds like two contradictory terms. We're waiting for the return of Christ and we're hastening the day of Christ. How do we hasten the day of God? It's interesting. I believe in the big sovereign picture of God, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, God knows exactly when Christ is going to return. It's set, but yet it says we're hastening the return. We're hastening the day of God. And I think it means this, that we are the tools and instruments that God is using to bring about the fulfillment of his plan. This is fascinating. Every commentary that I read said the primary way that we hasten the coming of Christ is by taking the gospel to the nations. Isn't that a great thought? That's why missions is so important. That's why missions is at the heart of everything we do. We are hastening the day of Christ's return by taking the gospel to all of those people groups who have yet to hear. We are hastening the coming of Christ by bringing in his church. We are hastening the day of God, as Paul says in Romans 11, that God is waiting until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And we're bringing them in. We're helping to bring them in. So we are waiting for and hastening the return of Christ at the same time. But I want to end this morning I want to end this message by focusing on verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since God is going to bring judgment on heaven and earth by fire, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The only thing, the only thing that will survive the fires of judgment our lives of holiness and godliness in Christ. The only things. Folks, the only things that are going to matter in the end is that you know Christ as Savior, that you live for Christ and you labor for Christ. Everything else is going to be burned up. The only things that are going to matter when you die, when this earth is judged, is that you know Christ as Savior 
that you live for him and that you labor for him. People are working tirelessly to earn as much money as they can. They're trying to acquire as much fame as they can. All around the world, there are statues to famous people. There are plaques remembering famous people. There are buildings named after famous people. Folks, one day it's all going to be burned up. One day it's all going to be burned up and it's not going to matter at all. Everything will be burned up except the fruits of holiness and godliness. There is an old saying, many years old, if you grew up, and I know not all of you have here, but if you happen to grow up in a Bible teaching church, you may know this little saying by heart. It's been said for years. It sums up everything Peter is saying in this chapter. And that saying is this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's it. Exactly. That's exactly what Peter is saying in this section. And that's why he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of godliness and holiness? Only one life will soon be passed. Only, only what's done for Christ will last. We're going to close in song in just a moment. And as we sing, the thing I really want you to focus on is the greatness of God. I want to come back to that. We're going to close with the song, the great hymn, Immortal, Invisible. Immortal, invisible God, only wise, enlightened, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. As you sing, I want you to sing as unto him, and I want you to soak in. I want you to drink in the greatness of God. With the Lord. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. With the Lord, he does not want any to perish, but longs for all to come to repentance. Let us praise him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your majestic grandeur and splendor. Oh, Father, we thank you that you see all of time, all at once, and you are sovereignly in control of all things. Lord, by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, help us to lift our voices and our minds to you in praise and song. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.